So uh, we're in the Word of God. Um, give me that slide, the uh, Jesus Christ is person, if you don't mind. There it is. Thank you. So we're actually doing 15 through 19, and we're going to read God's Word now. Heavenly Father, we're about to enter your Word, and this is sacred ground, Lord. You wrote a book. And Father, we take it for granted. We take you for granted. We fully admit that, and you know that, and yet you dearly love us. And so, Father, as you introduce us today to um, a greater depth of insight on the person of your Son and on who Jesus is and, and what that means to us, we pray that you would help us pay attention to what you say and to take it in. Help us to separate the troubles of this week and the worries of next week from this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body of the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Father, as we enter this section of Scripture, it's a lot of things about Jesus, it's a lot of doctrine, a lot of theology, and, but we're simple people. And we want something tangible that we can take away, and yet we're not going to dictate to you what you would give us. We just uh, humble ourselves and beg you that we could know some greater intimacy about you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know what his gunner is back, and I am, I am glad that you have a pastor that who, while on vacation, actually goes to church. I mean, I don't know many cops when on vacation decide to jump into a black and white, or many plumbers that decide to climb into a house, but Gunner is here in church, and it's a lovely thing, and his dear wife is with him today, and that's lovely. Um, so <clears throat> go up and greet them at some point. It's okay. Um, I thought he might come back and preach today. Then I saw he was in shorts, and I just know he wouldn't do that. Thank you for giving me this section of Scripture, Gunner. I do appreciate it. Go ahead and advance the slide from, would you? Um, in a few seconds, slide please. Overhead, hit the button. You did? Oh, you did. Thank you. <laughs> that was seamless. Very seamless. In a few seconds, those of you who, who were here last week, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you what it is that you think hinders your intimacy with God. So, so think about that. I'll come back to it, okay? That's like a forethought here. Um, in our text today, we learn that Jesus is supremely God. Jesus is supremely God. Not something like God, not part God, not mostly God, not other than God. He is supremely God. Now, last week I asked you to consider what might hinder your intimacy with God. I told you that was coming. So this is where the audience can actually talk. Can we do that in church? Yes. What has hindered your, not your husband's, not most people, but your, what has hindered your intimacy with God? Just a few people, as you've thought about this. Sin, yeah, that's a big one. Pride, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, God does get in the way of my life, doesn't he? Absolutely, yeah. Anybody else? Wealthiness, did I hear Wealthiness? world worldliness absolutely i'm i'm 
I'm right there. I live in this world, and it takes, it distracts me. A lot of things hinder this idea of intimacy, right? Let's see a hand somewhere else. Yeah, you're just telling us too much about yourself. Yeah, amen. Yeah. But absolutely, we're right there. Guilty, you know, guilty as charged. Guilty as charged. Um, now, as we continue in this theme that seems to be coming out of here, that intimacy with God is the greatest need of a Christian. Intimacy with God is the greatest need of the Christian. I want to offer you, according to our context, the number one factor that, hinder, that hinders our intimacy with God. And here it is. We don't know God. We don't know God. All of us have formed some sort of image of God, some sort of working paradigm, some, so that we're not totally godless, something that functionally works for us, and still it's likely that your image of God, the image that we've created in our minds, is not exactly the picture of God as seen in the Bible. Not exactly the picture of God seen in his revealed world. And, and that said, we really don't know God. And that's a problem. Overhead for me, thanks. And here's the problem. It is impossible to have true intimacy with someone you don't know. It's a principle. It's impossible to have true intimacy with someone you don't know. You know, we see this illustrated in perhaps the saddest story in, in the Bible back in Genesis 29. You know the story, so I'll rush through it. But Jacob falls madly in love with Rachel. Madly in love. And her father Laban agrees that he can marry Rachel, but only after seven years of hard labor um, working for Laban. But because of the great love which, with, with which uh, Jacob loved Rachel, the years seemed like but days. And you know what happened? The wedding has finally arrived, and Jacob has this image of a wife on his mind, Rachel. It's burned in his mind, but in the morning, Jacob discovers he's not married to Rachel, but rather he is married to Rachel's older sister, Leah. And that's not the sad part. He gets to marry Rachel later. But the sad part is seen as Leah begins to have children. In verse 31, it says, Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, so he let her have babies. And why was Leah unloved? Because she did not meet the image of a wife which Jacob had formed in his mind, Rachel. Next verse, Leah conceived and bore another son, and she said, surely my husband will love me now. Oh. Then again, she has another son, because the Lord has heard that I am unloved. This is really sad. And then again, another son. Now this time my husband will become Attached to me. That is a really sad story. From day one, Jacob demonstrated to Leah, you're not who I thought you were when I married you. I don't know you. I don't love you. The image of a wife that Jacob had in mind was not what he discovered to be in his bedroom the next morning. Yes, they made babies, but there was not going to be genuine intimacy between them. It wasn't going to happen. It's impossible to have true intimacy with someone you don't know. And you don't know because you have a different image in your mind. And again, I say, we don't know God. We each have some wrong ideas about God. Hence, it is impossible to have a genuine intimacy with God when we don't really know who he is or we've formed ideas about him that aren't true. Overhead for me. And the problem is this. We cannot know God. 
It's not a skull that you weren't trying hard enough. It's not a skull that, that you should know. We can't. It's beyond our pay grade. It's actually not possible. You say, well, John, yes, I do. I do know God. Well, no, you don't. Well, yes, I do. Well, let me show you in the scriptures. Okay, listen. We are incapable of knowing God. We're not wired that way. We can know things about God. We can, we can draw right conclusions from the orderly way that he created the universe. Uh, we can draw conclusions from uh, the, the way God reacted with people in the biblical histories, in the Old Testament especially. We see how God dealt with men in the past, and we can learn things about God. We can know limited facts about God by the declarations that he's spoken about himself. We can know things about God, but friends, we are talking about God. A being so far above our pay grade that our pea-sized brains cannot even entertain a proper paradigm by which to start knowing him. He's distant, let alone forming an intimacy with him. So I said, what is the chief need of every Christian? Intimacy with God. That remains true. It's what we need. Now stick with me. Good news to follow, okay? Overhead for me. The theological term is the transcendence of God. You can Google that later if you like that sort of thing. But let me demonstrate it from the Scriptures. Isaiah 40 is one of the best places to go. In Isaiah 40, he says, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. That's us, folks. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, who spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. And then in Isaiah 55, again, you know this one. God says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than yours. So how are we supposed to have intimacy with such a one? We can't. So what do we do? Well, it's simple. We settle. We settle. This is what men always do. We settle. We essentially say, as men have always said, well, I will have an intimate connection with the God as I understand him to be. And that sounds very pious and very religious. It sounds spiritual. But this is the problem with many of our marriages today. We men are willing to have intimacy to the degree that can be had with the way that we envision our wives should be instead of learning and appreciating who she actually is. And if that strikes a nerve, men and women, it's not going to get better until it gets corrected. But that's for Gunner at another time. Let's get back to God. God forbids us. <laughs> Your counseling sessions have now doubled. God forbids us to seek an intimate connection with the God of our own thoughts and our own imaginations. The God image we have settled for. Um, and you know Exodus 20, we call them the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, God says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And then he goes on to say, as if it's even redundant, which it's not, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, etc., to worship them. God says, no, you cannot make an image of me to worship. With even the noblest thoughts about God, God forbids people from creating an image or a likeness of heavenly things. And there's two reasons for this. First, people will always 
eventually begin to worship and reverence the thing they have created instead of what they think it's supposed to point them to. It just doesn't work. And perhaps more importantly, number two, is the imaginations of even the best and most noble artist out there would be less than the real thing. To create a representation of God necessarily diminishes truths about God, truths which our pea brains cannot even begin to comprehend. So we settle. We cannot have a satisfying, life-changing intimacy with something not quite God. It won't satisfy. To attempt to do so simply makes you just religious at best and a fraud at worst, and your kids will always see through your fraud. They know mom and dad are fakes when they're fakes. They know. Now, while seemingly impossible, the truth remains that intimacy with God is the greatest need of the Christian. Have I painted the picture? Okay. So let's transition away from the problem and move toward the solution. God knows that intimacy with God is the greatest need of the Christian. So God took it upon himself to solve our problem. Let me give you a little parable here. It's not in the Bible, so don't look it up. But the parable goes that a farmer, this is a Great Valley Center parable, a farmer was raising little quail, a flock of hatchlings, when the winter snows began to form. Okay, North Dakota then. The farmer had prepared a heated hen house for the safety of these little quails to protect them. Unfortunately, his attempts to corral the chicks into the hen house were met with fear and chaos. They didn't understand that this, this giant was not there to hurt them, but was there to try to help them. And he tried over and over to steer the quail into the, th- into the flock, but chaos just followed. And the farmer knew that death by freezing was imminent. And he thought to himself, if only I could become one of them, then I could explain it to them. Bing! That's God's answer to our inability to have intimacy with him. God became a man so that we could know God. God became a man so that we could know God. Now, the hymns today could not have been more perfect to this message. So thank you for picking those. I didn't do it. Um, to say so, I need proof. I need proof text. Let me give you some proof. John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word... Uh, let's see, and the Word is with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus was with God and became a man and dwelt with us. God became a man and spent time with us. God became a man, and his name is Jesus. And hence our context, Colossians 1.15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The supreme deity of Jesus is a fall-on-your-sword issue. It's worth dying for. It's a declaration you don't deny. You let them cut your head off for this one. This is what we fight over. No compromise. Jesus is not something like God. Or the closest expression of, this is what one of my friends wrote me this week, uh, who's decided to bail on God. Uh, He says, well, I think uh, Jesus is the closest expression of God to be found in any man. No, he is God. Jesus is supremely, absolutely, 
fully, completely, totally God. And we'll see next week that this must be true if he is to rescue us completely from our sin. But that's for next week. If we are to appropriate our need, our legitimate need for intimacy with God, then we must appropriate it through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Bible teaches that that Jesus is deity. Jesus is God. The Bible teaches us that. So let's look at some of those passages. I'm a teacher. I'm not necessarily a preacher. So I teach. Now, to digest all of the Scripture that proves that Jesus is taught there to be God is really not possible in a short meeting like this. My wife said it's the 4th of July, and some of you guys have things like, I don't know, lunch and picnics planned, and you want to get out of here. Um, We haven't received an invite to one yet, but I just throw that out (laughs) very shamelessly because I just want to point that out, but it's okay. But I do want to equip you. I want to equip you that something that's worth your time, something doable. Slide for me. So here it is. Jesus Christ, his person. Repeat after me. Jesus Christ, his person. Okay. Take your cowboy cool off. Men talk to Jesus Christ, his person. Good. And we see John chapter one, Colossians chapter one, Hebrews chapter one, and Philippians chapter two, primary texts that you can go to over and over again to remind yourself that Jesus Christ is deity. Let me read them for you. John chapter one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God, and the word was God. John chapter 1, right? Colossians chapter 1, you're here. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Hebrews 1. In these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Powerful verse. Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Little King James there, you'll be okay. Jesus Christ is person. John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1, Philippians chapter 2. You're a bunch of theologians now. How cool is that? You can remember that. Now, I'm not giving that to you so you can argue the deity of Christ with someone that comes knocking at your door trying to sell you magazines. That's not the purpose of this. This is a sacred teaching, and it is, it is for you so that you can begin to have intimacy with God. Something to chew on there. The deity of Jesus, that Jesus is God, is the teaching of every solid Christian church out there. It's what Baptists believe. It's what Lutherans believe. Catholics and Presbyterians, Reformed and Dispensational. It's considered to be Orthodox teaching, true teaching, uh, evangelical teaching, biblical teaching, whatever you need to say. This is what Christians believe. And still, it's not as simple as it seems. So let me, con- let me go and complicate it a little bit. Now, last week I said we need to know God, not just know about God. But I'll tell you, it's hard to know God if you don't know something about God. So we're going to look at something about God today. And here's where it gets complex. So who Jesus is not? Well, Jesus is not God the Father. It's not. Throughout the Bible, God introduces himself as a father or as the father. And Jesus regularly speaks about God, his father. For instance, at his resurrection in John 20, he says to Mary, Woman, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, 
but I, uh, but go to my brethren and tell them that I ascend to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So Jesus acknowledges Father God. The Bible refers then to Jesus as God's Son. Uh, John 3.16, some of you know that verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God the Son. And just to complicate things further, we have this God the Holy Spirit. Uh, John 14, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. Now again, this is not a comprehensive study on the nature of God. It's just introductory. You sang songs where you acknowledge this. The problem with this threefold identification with God is quite serious. It's actually problematic, and we should acknowledge that. A good Jew could not accept that Jesus was God because the Bible teaches clearly that God is one. That's what differs, that's what separates the Christian God, the Jewish God, from all other pagan gods out there. Our God is one. Every morning and every evening for the past 3,000 years, every good Jewish man has recited the Shema Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Morning and evening, morning and evening, morning. In fact, in Deuteronomy 6, it's so serious that God says, make sure you teach your kids that. He says uh, in verse 7, you shall teach this diligently to your sons and shall talk of it when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. And even Jesus testified to the importance of knowing that God is only one. Uh, Mark 12, he says, one of the scribes came and said, Jesus, what commandment is the foremost of all? And Jesus answered, the foremost is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Every pious Jew hopes to die with those words on his lips. It's serious business. And perhaps you can see why telling a Jewish audience that Jesus is actually God is a tough pill for them to swallow. Overhead for me? Thanks. Now the Bible makes it very clear that God the Father, God the Son, And God the Holy Spirit are all God. Put that on your shelf. And each of them are all individual personalities. Put that on your shelf. And all are completely equal. And all are only one. Only one. I hope that does not make sense to you. It's not supposed to. It's a mystery about God that our pea brains cannot comprehend. Still, it's true. It's the historic teaching about this uh, in the church. It's, we, we've, we've coined the phrase in the early hundreds, we coined the phrase the Trinity or the triunity of God. The word Trinity is not a fall on your sword issue. Don't argue over the word Trinity. Don't argue about things that you yourself don't understand, things that are above your pay grade. But the concept is in there throughout the scriptures. For instance, in Genesis 1.26, every Jew should know this. Then God said, let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. And here we have a pre-Mosaic law reference to the plural nature of God. And if you want to have some fun, go look up Jewish literature about that verse and see what they say. It's fun. Now still, the fullness of the nature of God is far above our ability to comprehend. And don't you want a God who is bigger than the the ability of your brain to understand? That's the kind of God you want. Something bigger than you and greater than you. 
Now, why am I telling you this? First, because we need to know that it is absolutely legitimate to seek intimacy with God by way of seeking intimacy with Jesus. It's one of the reasons God actually sent Jesus as a man. Uh, John 1 says it this way. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. That's how we know God, by Jesus. Uh, John 5, 1 John 5 says this, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true and his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God. This is eternal life. Jesus came so that we may know him who is true. So that we may know the true God. That's 1 John 5.20 for those of you taking notes. Important verse. Now second, you and I need to know this because the full deity of Christ is always denied by those people that we would call cults or first false religions And in my experience, every religious person or even Christian who decides to go off the deep end starts to deny deny this fact. They tell you Jesus is less than God, something like God. 1 John 2 says it this way. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. And the one who confesses the Son has the Father also. That Jesus is God is a fall-on-your-sword issue worth dying for. Okay, Jesus is not God. Who else? Jesus is also not a man who became God. Jesus is God who became a man. Moreover, he retains a flesh and bones body today, something beyond our comprehension, but something you're going to get to have. So don't worry, he's got it handled. And that brings us to our next point. Who is Jesus? Who exactly is Jesus? Okay, well, Jesus is God revealed. He is God revealed. Colossians 1, 15, right where we are. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And let me stop you there. It is quite possible to look at the descriptions of Jesus in verses 15 through 19 and simply see it as true information. And that would be a mistake. We can simply see it as true information. But in the same way, last week I challenged you to use Paul's prayers as words in your own prayers, I would suggest to you that for those of you seeking intimacy with God, that Colossians 1, 15 through 19 should be read in a posture of worship, reciting to Jesus all of these things. Lord Jesus, you are God revealed. You are the firstborn. You are the image of Almighty God. Jesus likes to hear things about himself. It's safe worship. That's how you worship God. You, you say these things to him, but that's for free. Okay. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now, the Father is spirit or invisible. The Bible teaches that. You can't see God. And Jesus makes the Father visible for us. Let me illustrate this. Good Valley Center illustration now. You know, in Valley Center, we have a lot of sun. And we have 
we've really never seen the sun. Do you realize that? I mean, if, if the sun is very far away from the earth. In fact, if you were to look up at the sun today, and no, I'm not recommending you do, but if you were, you would actually see the sun rays that were generated about eight minutes and 20 seconds ago. But I'm fairly certain that when you look up there, the rays that you see are an accurate representation image of the, of the rays that the sun has cast. I have no doubt that it's an accurate representation of what the sun was eight minutes ago and is going to keep being. When we see Jesus, we see the glory and the personality of God the Father projected into and through God the Son. John 14 says it this way. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long? And yet you have come to say, show us the Father. Don't you know me, Philip? I and the Father are one. Not what Philip expected. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, it says. And this is a somewhat foreign idea in our culture the firstborn of all creation. We don't have things like that. Uh, We place a value on our independence and our dependence, uh, but it means that Jesus takes first place in all things. As the one kid said, he bees the boss. The term is the primacy of Jesus. You can Google that later if you like that sort of theological thing. The primacy of Jesus, meaning he's in charge. He has the birthright in the created order, not because he was created, but because he has entered because he has entered into his own creation when the creator enters creation he is number 1 every time you mean he'd get every question in jeopardy right yes every question all of the, yes absolutely he's number 1 and hence to have intimacy with jesus we must be in submission to his authority It's who he truly is, and he will not meet you halfway on this. He's totally the boss. Now, some people say that the word firstborn is proof that Jesus was at some point born or created, but that's just foolishness, and the context blows this away. Look at verse 16. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. God is not created, but everything else is. And everything that has been created has been created by Jesus. Jesus also created not just things, but he created all thrones and dominions and rulers and authority. Consider this interaction. With that in mind, John 19, I love this. So Pilate says to Jesus, you know this first. Pilate says to Jesus, you do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. What's he saying? Unless it had been given to you from me. Ooh, read, read John next time with that in mind. Jesus was regal and authoritative all through the beautiful book of John. Now, what's hard for us to understand, let's just put it on the table, is why would he put a Hitler in power? Why would God do that? But friends, that's above our pay grade. It doesn't really matter. You can trust him. 
What we do know is that all of these authorities have been created through him and for him. Yes, for his purpose, whatever that is. Now, Jesus created authority and authority structure. And we might say that structure is a reflection of Jesus. I might be on thin ice here, guys. He likes order. He does not like disorder. But perhaps I'm going too far. But let me ask you a question here. Are you one who tends to rub against authority? And if you are, what does that really say about the state of your intimacy with God? Now, why am I bringing this up? Because later in the book, and this will be Gunner's problem, not mine. Later in the book, God's going to tell you, wives, submit to your husbands. And that is not possible, wife, unless you have intimacy with God. And intimacy based on the true character and true nature of God, not the, the God that the wife has created in her own belief of what God should be. And he's going to tell husbands, husbands, love your wives without being begrudging about it. Love her without bitterness. And I know that this is only possible as I grow in the true knowledge of Jesus as he has revealed himself in the Bible. And I submit to the facts about him I've learned in the Bible. Not the Jesus of my own making, but Jesus who is, the, who is also the Lamb of God, but also the Lion. And I submit to that Lion, the Lion of Judah. He's not a tame Lion. He's not a safe Lion. But he's good. He's going to tell children, children, obey your parents. Fathers, don't, ex- don't exasperate your children as they obey their parents. And this is especially important because if you children cannot submit to the authorities who love you, you'll never develop the kind of submission necessary to obtain intimacy with God. And fathers, Paul tells us, we should not smash our children as they're trying to learn to obey us. But Gunnar will deal with these daddy issues later. It hinders our ability as adults to have intimacy with God. Listen, we can't claim subjection to God's authority if we fight submission to God's authority structures. And it follows that if we fight God's authority structure, we cannot have intimacy with God. The thing we desperately need. When we do that, we're just fighting against ourselves, folks. Now, what helps me to submit to authority, and I've been wearing a uniform since I was 14 years old, the thing that helps me to submit to authority is this phrase, I have been created through him and for him. The knowledge, uh, this knowledge is a powerful truth when I'm trying to, trying to hold it together. I'm trying to hold it together. In fact, verse 17 tells us, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And this is why we are not afraid of global warming or a next ice age. The Bible tells me that Jesus is holding together his own creation. I can trust him for that. And still, while the context allows for us to apply this to the solar system and the molecules and these sorts of things, it especially applies to his family, the church. 
Jesus holds the church together. In my experience, a person who has a predisposition to fight authority in the world will eventually fight authorities within his church. The church is a family, but it's also a structure. And it would be a grave mistake in God's church to consider Pastor Gunner less than your authority. And just because he doesn't lord it over us, it doesn't take away the God-appointed position of authority. Now that said, Gunner's a good authority because he knows who he's working for. And verse 18 tells us that. Jesus is also head of the body of the church, and he is the beginning and the firstborn of the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Again, the firstborn from the dead is a reference to the first one that mattered. He wasn't the first one raised from the dead, but the first one that really mattered. The resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus got back up from the dead, is the threshold event of our salvation. The most important thing. Dying on a cross was good for us. Getting back up was great. If Jesus didn't conquer death, we are a pitiful lot indeed. Finally, we see the statement of supreme cooperation. Verse 19, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Jesus. Now, I think chapter 2, verse 9 actually says this a little better for me. It explains it. Colossians 2, 9 says this, for in him, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, God in the body. This is a glimpse of the workings of the Godhead, just a peek. It's way above our pay grade, but, but here's a peek into the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. There's no competition. There's no scrambling for first place. God is so pleased. God is so pleased for Jesus to take first place. And Jesus is pleased for God the Father to take first place. There's no resisting of authority, no questioning of authority, no what's my part, your part. They are absolutely on the same page, and they're the chief cheerleader for one another. Okay, what difference does it make? If it doesn't apply, what matter, huh? What difference does it make? Well, in intimacy, what is impossible for us, intimacy with God, makes Jesus makes possible. What's impossible for us, Jesus does make possible. And many of you have put your trust in Jesus for sal- the salvation of your soul, and that's great. But now is a call to put your trust in Jesus. Yes, to submit to Jesus as a step towards that which you and I need desperately, intimacy with God. And as your intimacy with God develops, it follows that your intimacy with each other in the bedroom, in the family room, in the church will grow as well. As we connect closer to God, we'll connect closer to each other. Okay. Before we go out to lunch, let me ask you. Is there somewhere that you are resisting God's authority structure? Chew on that one. And let me ask you this. Where in your life do you desperately need Jesus to hold it together? Jesus, I just need you to hold it together. He's there for that. Okay, let me ask you, is Jesus fully God? John chapter, Colossians chapter, Hebrews chapter, Philippians chapter. Okay, let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came, God in the flesh. What an amazing thing. We can't comprehend that. But we thank you also that we have the Lord Jesus Christ, our advocate in heaven, one who understands our weak frame and the way we are. And Lord, we pray that you would reveal to us areas where we can draw closer to you and know you better. They've already identified out here the things that hinder us from intimacy. Lord God, support us strongly in this journey, and you get the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.